you know, those humans, maybe they do an iteration every week or two between them if things are going well. The AI will do something on the order of an iteration a minute. So you get a lot more iteration cycles. And because of the more iteration cycles, you just get more optimal designs uh, much, much faster using this evolved structures process. It's much faster to come up with the structure, about 10 times faster. And then the structures tend to perform much better. So they're you know, somewhere on the order of three times uh, better in performance. Almost all of our cost is non-recurring engineering, right? So, you know, there's only one Hubble, there's only one web. So I think these technologies are really uniquely suited to the work that we do at NASA. Welcome to Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast where we tap into project experiences to share best practices, lessons learned, and novel ideas. I'm Dina Nunley. Digital engineering technologies are transforming classical engineering tasks such as design, analysis, and fabrication for spaceflight structures. Ryan McClelland, a research engineer in the Instrument Systems and Technology Division at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, joins us to discuss digital engineering technology and specifically the evolved structures process. Ryan, thank you for being our guest on the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about this Evolved Structures technology. How would you define or describe the Evolved Structures process? So at a really basic level, it's a new way of using computers to come up with designs. So, you know, in the past, you know, people would um, just sort of invent things based on things they've worked on before or things they've seen. And the Evolved Structures process is a very uh, prescribed way of using AI to come up with a, with a design, uh, really for anything, but especially for spaceflight structures. So you start with the requirements for your structure, uh, you know, what it has to hold, what kind of load it has to see, uh, and then you encode those into a piece of software called generative design. And then an AI comes up with a bunch of different options for um, what that design could look like and actually evolves an optimal structure. And as it's evolving that optimal structure, it takes into account how it's going to be fabricated. Uh, so it makes sure that if you're going to be machining it, it can be machined with the tools that you have on hand. And then after you get that design, you can, um, created by generative design, you throw that over to something called digital manufacturing, which is just a manufacturing process that really directly takes that CAD model from generative design and uh, fabricates it. So it really is a way of going right from you know, what a structure needs to do, what its requirements are, to, uh, to being able to build that structure physically uh, very quickly. What are the benefits of these technologies? So there's really two things, speed and performance. So it's much faster to come up with the structure, about 10 times faster, and then the structures tend to perform much better. So they're, you know, somewhere on the order of three times uh, better in performance. And when I mean performance, I mean really the stiffness to weight ratio. So they're, um, so they're very stiff and very light, and they're also quite a bit stronger than, than human design structures. Why did you decide to pursue this work? So yeah, over the you know, pandemic, I was at home and um, had a lot of time to think about things and also a lot of time to you know, read and watch science fiction. And I'm really sort of a big picture thinker. And you know, I realize an exciting future for me is where we're a spacefaring civilization, where there are more people living off the earth than on it. 
But as a mechanical engineer at NASA, I know that it's very expensive to build things that go into space. And if you take you know, the idea of having lots of people living in space, and then you look at something like the space station, right? The space station holds you know, uh, six or seven people, but it's $100 billion. So you can't have a lot of people uh, living in space at that scale. So I really think AI has, has the potential to drastically lower the costs of developing these complex systems because it's really, it's really great at these sort of things. And being a mechanical engineer, um, I got thinking about how AI can be used in mechanical engineering to lower the cost of, you know, making these cool structures in space um, and helping us be spacefaring. And so that is kind of the original inspiration for it. And that's how I found uh, this generative design idea and even some existing products. And then I just started uh, fooling around with it. And then eventually, um, through Goddard's technology program, got a little, you know, hundred-hour seed funding to um, to see if there's any uh, real, you know, promise behind the technology, and then uh, rolled that into some IRAD funding, and then from there, it's just been uh, growing and growing. That's so fascinating. How can AI be applied to development of spaceflight hardware? I think there are lots of opportunities um, for AI to be applied. And really, anytime you can come up with, you know, a good set of constraints and also some kind of good objective function, uh, like, for instance, you know, minimize mass or maximize stiffness or minimize stress, um, you can apply AI. And that's just, you know, in the mechanical field. But I think, you know, really all across the disciplines, it's going to have it's going to have an impact. Um and in the mechanical field, it really is uh, quite amazing to see the AI come up with designs that you would have never come up with. And one of the really fun things about this is it comes up with designs that you would have never come up with, but once you see them, they make sense. You're like, oh, this, this design, I understand why the AI did this, and, and I see how it works. How is the evolved structures or generative design process different than current engineering design processes? Well, the way that things are designed now, it hasn't changed in quite a long time. You know, computer-aided design or CAD systems, 3D modeling, um, have been a pretty big change since people were on the drawing board. Um, But there hasn't really been a, a big change since then. And usually the way it works is, you know, the mechanical engineer is given, you know, a set of requirements. And sometimes they're pretty informal that, you know, you need a, a bracket or a mount that holds, you know, holds a detector and it has to, you know, survive this kind of load and it has to have these kind of interfaces. So a designer will basically just kind of imagine um, what that might look like. And a lot of times they'll either start with something they've, they've done before or they'll start with thinking about just like flat plates and flat planes because it's it's kind of easy to think that way and it's easy to design that way. So the designer comes up with some idea and then models it up in CAD. And then uh, we're pretty stovepiped at Goddard or at NASA in general. So the designer will usually sort of throw it over to a different organization to have uh, the stress analyst look at it to see what the modes are and what the stress is in the part. So the stress analyst will look at it and... Um, you know, they might change some sizes of things, but they won't change the overall layout because usually the stress analysts don't don't do design. Uh, and there'll be a little bit of back and forth between the analyst and the designer, but but not a lot. And then from there, usually uh, the designer or someone else will make a drawing, and that drawing will uh, go to the machinist or you know some kind of fabrication outlet. And then you know 
sometimes the machinists well the machinists will always look at the design sometimes they'll give feedback uh, sometimes they they won't give feedback they'll just you know grumble about how hard it is to make and and just go off and 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 make it anyways so it really you know, it kicks around between, say, three or four different people in different organizations, and it sort of evolves between those people. So to the extent that those people are giving each other feedback, you know, it improves. But those feedback loops are, are really, really slow um, because people go on vacations, people take training. Um, so between, you know, design analysis and um, design for manufacturing, you know, checking if it can be manufacturable, that's how the design gets, you know, gets made. And then after it's made, you know, it gets, um, it gets tested and verified uh, before launch, of course. And really what the Evolve Structures process does is take that, you know, back and forth that goes on between a few different people and, you know, can take months or years depending on, on the project and how, you know, how devoted the people are, whether they're working on other things. And it collapses that down to, you know, something that's all done by the computer. So, so the user enters the requirements into the system, and then the AI comes up with the design and then tests the design by finite element analysis to make sure it works to, you know, verify the requirements. And then it also does a fabrication simulation to make sure it can be fabricated. And, you know, whereas, you know, those humans, maybe they do an iteration every week or two between them if things are going well. The AI will do something on the order of an iteration a minute. So you get a lot more iteration cycles. And because of the more iteration cycles, you just get more optimal designs uh, much, much faster using this Evolve Structures process. And then how does that process work with NASA requirements and standards? Yeah, that's uh, something really interesting that um, I didn't realize at first, but is actually a, a big advantage is you can directly encode NASA's requirements and standards into generative design or evolved structures um, in a way that's very deterministic. So, you know, a lot of times if you have a junior engineer on a project, they might not know, you know, what all the standards are. But with the evolved structures process, you know, the standards that you that go into generative design are uh, pretty well pretty well laid out. So things like, um, you know, we have um, NASA standard 5020 for fasteners, you're supposed to have a, a 1.5D edge distance for a hole. And then in generative design, when you make the preserve, which is the, the you know, say the part of the, um, the bolted interface that needs to be, you know, in the design, you can put that in the CAD model. Uh, and other things like, you know, you have, um, you know, radii that you want to, um, keep the part from being under too much stress, and you can specify those radii right in there. And then also things like, you know, the loads, like what are the loads in early design? We have this thing called the mass acceleration curve or the MAC, uh, and part of the evolved structures process is, you know, showing the user how to take loads uh, from the MAC and then encode them into the generative design uh, so that you can get the design that you want. So. I think it's a much more sort of prescribed way for an engineer to uh, come up with a design that meets all the requirements much more quickly. And it's especially great if you have less experienced people because it's all kind of kind of spelled out in the process. What's the risk level associated with these technologies compared with human design and traditional techniques? So it's interesting. When I first started pursuing this technology, 
you know, I was enthusiastic about it, but, you know, but of course a little bit skeptical myself because that's, that's what you have to maintain. And then as I went through it and I, I started getting these like really unusual looking, um, almost bone-like organic structures that, that generative design comes up with, um, people reacted to them. You know, some people were really enthusiastic and thought that they were awesome. And some people kind of thought that they were, they were weird and scary looking. Um, and, you know, that's where, you know, people see them and, the, and they just immediately see risk. And then as I, you know, talked to other folks in the field and, um, you know, compared more with human designs, I think they actually are less risky than, than human designs uh, for a few reasons. One of those reasons is they're just much stronger. So the way that the algorithm works to evolve the optimal structure, it, it tends to smooth out the stress over the whole part. So you don't have any uh, stress peaking. So in the applications where I've compared human and AI designs, the AI designs are something like, you know, three, even up to 10 times uh, lower stress than the human designs. So when you have lower stress, that just makes everything safer. And another really interesting thing about, you know, thinking about risk is the evolved structures process is a very uh, deterministic way of coming up with a design. Um, so you know, you know what's going on in the background, how it's coming up with the design. And it's interesting to think about, you know, when a human comes up with the design, how, what's going on in, the, in their mind. Um, and it really varies a lot from human to human and even day to day. So if you were to give, um, you know, 10 engineers the same set of requirements for design, you would come up with, you know, 10 different designs and they'd be very a lot in quality between, you know, based on, uh, how junior or senior the person was and how much coffee they drank that day. Um, but with generative design, it's, it's deterministic. Uh, and I think it can lower the risk in that way too. And one of the failure modes that I've seen a lot throughout my career is that sort of back and forth that I was talking about between the designer, the analyst and manufacturing, you know, that's kind of like a game of telephone. And, you know, as anybody who's played the game of telephone knows, you know, things get dropped uh, between at interfaces. Um, so sometimes between the designer and the analyst, there's some subtlety in the model that's missed or between the designer and the manufacturing, there's, there's something that takes place in the manufacturing the designer doesn't know about. So generative design and the evolved structures process helps eliminate that because it eliminates those interfaces. So you're not gonna get a disconnect between the modeling and the FEA or the fabrication simulation and the FAA and the modeling because they're all being done simultaneously uh, by the same tool. And I think there's one more thing that's really important and is really, um, I've had a lot in my mind, is that being able to come up with a optimal structure really quickly allows you to run what's called hardware rich. So a lot of times in the NASA world, We'll design things for for literally years before we we build anything uh, to test. So the evolved structures process, if you can come up with an optimal structure in a couple days, and then you know manufacture it in a week or two, and then you can test it, you can um, run hardware rich and basically do more testing and find problems uh, quicker. So another area that I've seen things sort of go wrong in the aerospace field is most of the problems come up when you actually try to make something. And it can be because it's harder to make than you thought, or um, 
you know, when you get it made, there was something that you missed. So being able to iterate on the actual hardware, not just on the design, but the physical parts, I think is a really powerful aspect of Evolve Structures. Is this ready for infusion into NASA projects and proposals? So yeah, especially for a certain class of pro- of, of uh, structures. So mostly I've used it on sort of what I would call small to mid-sized metallic structures. So uh, things like, you know, brackets and mounts um, and, you know, structures that basically hold detectors or, or any variety of things, which really comprise a lot of, uh, especially instruments. So for those, you know, those kind of structures, it's basically ready. It's being used now on the, um, the uh, drone that's going to be flying on Titan, uh, the Dragonfly mission. Uh, it's being used on uh, Mars uh, CCRS, uh, the Capture Containment Return System. So yeah, it's definitely it's definitely ready, and um, I look forward to being able to fly some things in space soon. And in fact, you know there are uh, other groups that have flown similar things uh, in space already. So you know, also for proposals, you know that's a good time to sort of start using it. Really, the, the earlier you can get uh, in the process, the more powerful it's going to be. Um, so especially for proposals, it's great. It can help you know lower the mass uh, of your system, which you know the cost models that that are used today, uh, mass is cost basically. Ryan, what are you seeing as barriers to adoption of the evolved structures process? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, a lot of people are getting excited about this work, and I see a lot of you know interest from from project managers and from from scientists. Uh, and then I also see a lot of interests um, from junior engineers, you know, folks that are you know really interested in trying new things. Uh, but uh, when it comes to sort of like more of the the mid level, um, a lot of times, you know, folks that are really responsible for for delivering the systems, a lot of times there's just sort of the you know fear of the unknown uh, of trying something that's untested. And you know, as I mentioned previously, you know, they they look like alien bones. They they look weird. Uh, and a lot of people have the uh, sort of misconception that it has to be additively manufactured. So it doesn't have to be 3D printed or additively manufactured. And that technology does, uh, you know, have some additional risk in it because uh, you can have, um, you know, flaws in the, in the manufacturing that you might not know about uh, without, you know, a lot of uh, rigorous validation. So people see these, you know, crazy looking organic structures and think that they can never be CNC machined out of, you know, our standard materials, which normal CNC machining processes. And it turns out that that CNC machining has actually come way further than people think. And you can make, you know, absolutely uh, almost anything you can imagine uh, with five-axis CNC machining these days. Um, so I think that's one of the barriers, just the, the they look strange. Um, and folks think that they would be difficult to machine. And I think just, you know, the structures field often tends to be uh, conservative because, you know, we never want our part to be the part that breaks. You know, our part a lot of times is uh, supposed to be the simple and reliable part, not the new technology. A lot of times the new technologies are reserved for the detectors and things like that uh, at Goddard. For anyone who may be unfamiliar with machining techniques, could you tell us more about that? Sure. So, you know, when most engineers think of uh, machining of, of, you know, spaceflight parts, they think of what's called, um, they think of milling, basically. So milling is, you know, you've got a, a turning spindle, and it just, you know, 
removes material and the way people think of milling, you know, the, the old school mill has like uh, a couple handles on it that you turn and it, and it translates this, uh, this milling bit around and that's how you move material. So especially, you know, actually it ten- tends to be the engineers that know the most about milling and have maybe even have one in their home that tends to have the, the most um, misconceptions about, you know, what it is these days. So, so a CNC mill, computer numerically controlled milling, uh, and a five axis, you can really take that milling bit and you can move it in almost any direction. And they're really, uh, really magical to see if, you know, you look up five axis CNC uh, on YouTube or something. So, you know, that CNC technology has really come a long way and it's not as much human intervention as, as people might think. So there's software called CAM or computer aided manufacturing, where you upload you know, you import that CAD model from generative design into this CAM package, and then it figures out the toolpath. And depending on the sophistication of the CAM software, you know, it may require more or less uh, human input. And then, you know, additive manufacturing is a um, a layer by layer technique. Uh, for metals, it's usually um, something like laser powder bed fusion, and in that case, you have a a, a powder of metal, and then you have a laser that basically um, melts it to make a layer and then a wiper blade comes over and puts more powder on top and then it just keeps melting uh, successive layers. So additive manufacturing does have you know a lot fewer constraints as far as what your design can look like. It can have you know internal structures and uh, it can even be hollow inside as long as you can get the powder out. Um, but the way that generative design makes parts now, it tends to not make hollow parts. Um, so a lot of them can be can be CNC machined. What are some of the challenges and limitations of the evolved structures process? It's evolving really quickly. So basically, every uh, CAD package out there is pursuing in generative design uh, in some respect, uh, and the evolved structures process right now is um, mostly tailored towards uh, a piece of software called Autodesk Fusion 360. And the limitations of that, you know, are slowly falling away as um, technology matures. But right now, they are. Um, it's really only good for um, isotropic materials, so you know things like you know metals and plastic. It's not good for things like composites that have different properties uh, in different directions. Though there are uh, pieces of software that that uh, are developing to to be able to use that. Uh, it's also not good for making. In tubes. So, you know, hollow tube is a, is a great structure often, and you tend not to get those with the, uh, the current generative design algorithms. And they also, they don't, uh, the tools that I'm using at least, uh, don't consider thermal in the equation. So you usually have to um, take it to, you know, one limitation or another. So a lot of times our structures, you either want them to be thermally uh, isolating, so not have a lot of uh, heat transfer across them, in which case this is usually pretty good because you get a uh, minimum size uh, members because it's lightweight. And if you make it out of titanium, then it's pretty, it's a pretty good isolator. Or on the other hand, you want it to have, you know, a certain amount of heat transfer, uh, in which case you just have to basically specify, I need this much uh, of, a, of a heat path. Um, but it doesn't uh, take into account, you know, thermal simulation is, is not part of the simulation currently. What's the plan going forward? So the plan going forward is to, um, at least on the structures front, is to try to whittle away 
at all of the um, you know the barriers to adoption, and then also whittle away at the um, the limitations. So one of the limitations that I that I didn't mention is it doesn't do you know multi-part structures right now. So if you think of like a a truss made of composite tubes and metallic nodes, um, it's not going to come up with that by design. So you know one of the things that I'm looking at for uh, for instance like the next generation large space telescopes is how to use uh, generative design to quickly come up uh, with the kind of structures that they might use. And there's a couple ways that you could do that. You could uh, come up with a structure that's that's monolithic and then sort of manually slice it uh, into different parts. Or you could potentially um, look at ways of fabricating really large uh, space structures monolithically. Um, so if you look at the work of a company called Relativity Space, they're printing an entire rocket, 3D printing an entire an entire rocket, which is is pretty amazing. So maybe you can build these structures um, monolithically, or, or maybe you you divide them up. So uh, also looking at things like flexures and optics, and really um, just expanding the range of applications to which evolved structures can be applied. In terms of a timetable and what you anticipate. Do you think we're starting to already see a paradigm shift in the way that people are doing engineering design as a result of these technologies? Well, it's really interesting to see um, how this will be adopted in industry um, broadly versus aerospace. So, so if you're you know a car manufacturer or, or you design bicycles. You know, you don't design a lot of new parts for bicycles. You know, those are, are pretty well um, are pretty well defined already. And you may you may design one or two, but with what we do, especially at Goddard, you know, all our instruments are unique. You know, every time um, we design an instrument, there are dozens of of these uh, structures. And I imagine, you know, across NASA, there are just you know, at any time, there are thousands of of these kind of structures being worked on that are unique. Uh, because almost all of our cost is non-recurring engineering, right? So, you know, there's only one Hubble, there's only one web. So I think these technologies are really uniquely suited to the work that we do at NASA. Uh, and I think that it's so powerful, you know, really the interest that I've been getting uh, across the agency with this technology has really um, taken me by surprise. And I do expect that... Um, it's going to start to to change things because it's just, you know, that, that 10 X reduction in time and that three X reduction, you know, improvement in performance. Uh, you just, you don't usually see those kind of gains, uh, in mechanical engineering. So yeah, I think, I think it's going to start to have an impact. Well, this has been incredibly fascinating, Ryan. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Sure. It's been great talking to you. You have any closing thoughts? Sure. Just, uh, you know, if folks are interested in this, they can just, you know, do some Googling on generative design and, you know, reach out to me directly if you, you know, have applications or want to learn more, want to take a look at um, the specifics of, of the Evolved Structures process. I've, uh, I've written a guide that sort of uh, walks new folks through uh, how to leverage it. Ryan's bio links to topics discussed during our conversation and a show transcript are available at apple.nasa.gov slash podcast. If you like the podcast, please follow us on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends and colleagues. As always, thanks for listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps.